You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, OpenAI and Microsoft's partnership facing potential antitrust scrutiny in the UK and the US will break down the CMA and the FTC's concern on the competition. And EU negotiators continue to debate rules for AI. We'll discuss the sticking points as regulators balancing the risks of artificial intelligence and its potential benefits. Plus, Harpoon Ventures raises $125 million for its fourth fund to invest in early-stage startups. We'll sit down with the founder, Larson Jensen, from today's VC Spotlight. But first, let's check in on these markets and completely flat on the Nasdaq. Look, we try to digest the macro picture that is resilience in the US economy, a strong jobs market, a confidence building in the consumer. And we're currently just, what, one point to the downside on the Nasdaq. After, of course, we saw that injection of buying yesterday. We do see big moves in the bond market, though. 13 basis, let's call 14 basis points to the upside on the two years. People think that perhaps we got a little bit too exuberant about thinking we'll have some sort of rate cuts as soon as March. Those probabilities dialing back in the market. We're seeing Brent crude popping up about 2.3% after indeed oil has been under pressure, but notably some views that the US is going to have to build up its stockpiles, just managing to push it up a little bit higher. Let's move on and have a look at what's happening in the world of crypto, of course, because the dollar shows resilience today. We see although over the course of the five past trading days, what a tear Bitcoin has been on. We're up more than 10%, 43,800 is where we currently trade, Ed. But what about those micro details today? Yeah, so a lot of news flow heading into the end of the year. One story we reported this morning, Tesla, another executive has left the Dojo project. This time, uh, Bill Chang, who is the principal engineer for AI on the project. You remember 24 hours ago, Mark Gurman and I reported that Ganesh Venkataramanan, 
who was the lead for Dojo, had left. We're now reporting on another departure. The stock, stock a little softer, three-tenths of one percent, but kind of in line with the market, not really drawing a causal link. The big technology story right now is Microsoft and OpenAI. In the last hour, Bloomberg have reported, citing a source, that the FTC has opened a preliminary look from an antitrust perspective in Microsoft's investment on OpenAI following the UK CMA, which has done a similar early or prelim look, an invitation for the thoughts of the public on what they feel about it. But it could lead to a full-blown probe. This is important. Did we see it coming? Let's bring in Bloomberg's Thomas Seale out of London. Thomas, let's start with the UK CMA. What are the details of what we know? Yeah, as you say, Edward, it's uh, it's early stages, um, but I think we did see it coming. We saw some early signs. It's hard to keep up with the CMA probes, even on Microsoft's uh, front. You know, it's only it's less than two months since they closed the Activision probe. But in recent months, they've been looking at AI foundation models. They've also been looking at the cloud market. Uh, and in today's statement on OpenAI, they do explicitly mention the relationship with Microsoft Azure and OpenAI. So, uh, yeah, really interesting and interesting to see other regulators uh, making similar early moves. It's kind of fascinating ultimately when we're looking across at what also the US FTC is examining into the nature of the investment that Microsoft made in OpenAI. We know they put in what ultimately is about $13 billion in terms of overall valuation that they've been contributing to OpenAI. But what the CMA is looking at is whether particularly through the governance situation, the unraveling, the firing, then rehiring of Sam Altman, that de facto Microsoft has more control than, well, the less than 50% ownership they have in equity. What is it that the CMA is trying to prove here? Who and how can consumers and competition be heard? Yeah, the key phrase, and when you look at antitrust, there's a lot of, uh, of, of dry or arcane phrases. The key phrase with the CMA is substantial lessening of competition or relevant merger situation. Now, clearly, this isn't a merger per se, um, but it is a substantial investment. We don't know the term sheet. I'm sure they would like to take a look at it. In fact, on stage at the Bloomberg Technology Conference last month, uh, no, back in October, I asked the senior director at the CMA that very question, whether he'd like to see the term sheets. And, uh, you know, you could tell, you could tell that he would. And, and he implied that they wanted to look at these vertical relationships, as he says, between big tech companies and, and foundation models, not just Microsoft OpenAI, but also substantial investments in Anthropic, obviously Google's uh, full-blown takeover several years ago of DeepMind. And that is precisely the deal that Brad Smith, president of Microsoft, referenced in his post when responding to all of this. He said, no, this is very different from Google's outright acquisition of DeepMind in the UK. And they referenced that the only thing that has changed is that Microsoft will now have non-voting observer on the OpenAI board. Thomas Seal, great reporting and analysis on what's happening in terms of the regulatory focus. I mean, as mentioned earlier in the US, the FTC is examining the nature of Microsoft's investment in the OpenAI as well whether it may violate antitrust laws. It's all according to a source. And the inquiries are preliminary. Agency hasn't opened a formal investigation, Ed. And the source says Microsoft didn't report the transaction to the agency because, look, the investment in OpenAI doesn't amount to control of the company under US law. All of this, though, just shows the frenzy with which many regulators are trying to wrap their head around 
the technological advancements that we see in AI and how we see some guardrails for it. Let's just go to the EU where negotiators are still working to hammer out rules on AI, hitting a snag when it comes to face scanning technology in particular. Bloomberg's Julian Deutsch has had, well, a pretty intense week over there in Brussels where just people have been falling asleep at their desks, it sounds like, in terms of trying to get a deal over the line. The stumbling block for you at the moment, what do we know? Yeah, so today marks we're about nine hours into the second marathon round of trying to get a deal on the Artificial Intelligence Act. Now, this is after a nearly 24-hour round ended on Thursday afternoon without a deal. Um, so they reconvened this morning. AI even kind of started off with a bit of a hitch. Uh, lawmakers were too busy debating amongst themselves to actually enter the negotiating room. Now we're seeing lots of counterproposals going back and forth between lawmakers and the EU's 27 member states. But everyone's bucking up for another long night ahead. And as we put on the screen right now, what's at stake? It would be the world's first comprehensive AI law if we get some progress. Bloomberg City and Deutsch, as Carrie said, been busy and will continue to be busy tracking that one. Thank you. The U.S. labor market continues to defy slowdown forecasts as evident in today's payrolls report. However, this week we saw Spotify announce job cuts that will impact 17% of its workforce. There were others, Twilio, for example. So what's going on? Joining us now to get a read on the labor market is LinkedIn senior economist Corey Contango. And Corey, great to have you on the program. Let's just get right to the technology sector. Do you have any sort of micro focus on what is happening there with hiring, firing in the context of what was a really robust jobs report. So what we're seeing now on LinkedIn and the technology sector are signs of stabilization. So hiring overall is down about 3% since July, which is also a positive sign for stabilization. But hiring in tech is actually up 3%. So it's been about a year and a half of cool down in tech, and we are finally starting to see some positive signs of stabilization in the hiring market for tech. What about, well, the overall inflationary pressure, wage inflation, that was something that we saw in the bigger macro data we're looking at at the moment. We're seeing, well, an increase in 0.4% for the average hourly earnings month on month. Are we seeing prices of people and talent go up? So in this week's jobs report, we did see an acceleration in nominal wage growth. And that can kind of fuel concerns about inflation, because one of the keys that the Fed thinks to controlling inflation is bringing down the job market, bringing down nominal wage growth so that wages aren't feeding so much into price pressures. But that's this month's job support is actually just kind of a reversal of the slowdown that we saw last month. Nominal wages are still running above what the Fed would like, but some of that that we're seeing is actually just coming from the composition of workers. We saw a big drop-off in retail employees in this month's jobs report, so those low wages are dropping off, which is kind of inflating that number as well. The low wages are dropping off. What are the higher wages doing? One of my and Caroline's favorite pastimes is to go on the internet and look at all the postings for AI-related jobs and then despair at how well-paid those potential postings are. But is it real? (laughs) Not that we're jealous, but is AI having a serious impact in the way that the news headlines would have you believe? Well, I'm going to have to get on and start looking at those job postings myself, if that's the case. Uh, 
So right now, we're, we're only seeing nascent impact from AI on the job market. Only about 4% of employers plan to make changes to their headcount as a result of the innovations we've seen this year in AI. Conversations are certainly up. We're all talking about it. About 70, they're about 70% higher this year than they were last year. We're also seeing that people are looking at job postings to say AI, as you said, about 17% higher. They're getting about 17% higher views compared to jobs that don't say anything about AI. Now, a lot of these jobs aren't AI jobs. They're just jobs that mention generative AI or mention AI in the job posting, in part because we know that this is an exciting area and no one wants to be left behind. It's great getting your perspective on really the nuance that's happening within the technology sector as well as more broadly the ramifications for what was a pretty sturdy set of numbers from Macro Data today. LinkedIn senior economist Corey Contengo, we thank you for your time. Meanwhile, let, let's get the read across from economist to market implication. We're so pleased to have in the building Lafa Tengler's investment CIO, Nancy Tengler, who really has such a great viewpoint on when it comes to valuations in this space, the technology space in particular. You've sort of seen this economy before. You say, keep looking at the 90s. We've been here, we've done that. Therefore, from the 90s, with this resilience, do you still buy tech? Yes, I think you do. I mean, if you look, Caroline, and thank you so much for having me in studio. It's great to be here. Um, I think when you look back at the 90s, you you learn that we can uh, coexist, that is, stock uh, equity investors, with higher interest rates. The 10-year averaged 5 to 8% during the decade. Higher levels of inflation. We were above 3% for the entire decade. Uh, and uh, a tight labor market with productivity uh, growth. And... Uh, a number of other things that, that we pay attention to, like the VIX, it was low during the 90s. These are things that have, have been before and yet we've still been able to generate excess returns. And where were the best returns in the 90s? They were, they were in technology. I think we're at the beginning of a, a new super cycle. So I think there's a lot of reasons on weakness to buy these names. Okay, we haven't actually seen that much weakness in the Magnificent Seven yet, for example. Maybe a bit of a dip on some of the chip makers, but ultimately, are you still saying, let's go for the Microsofts, the NVIDIAs, or do you broaden that viewpoint? We're broadening it. So if you look back at the valuations, I mean, I mean let's not forget, in, in the 90s, it was the four horsemen. I mean, at least now we have seven, right? <laughs> uh, and Microsoft then was trading at 51 times peak earnings. It's only around 30 times not peak earnings. So, uh, yeah. Yes, you want to own that name. I'm, I'm less enamored, as we talked about last time. I think I shocked Ed uh, with Meta. Uh, we own a little bit of Google, but we like Adobe. We like ServiceNow. Uh, the poor man's NVIDIA Broadcom, which reported great returns yesterday, uh, great results, and raised a dividend 14%. So those are some of the places we broadened out to Oracle, which is a, a generative AI computing uh, play. But when we were buying it, it was just kind of a, a, a cheap old economy technology stock. Ouch. Uh, Nancy, Ed is not that easily shocked. Uh, <laughs> but, one, but one thing that did catch my eye this year, I spent a, a day with AMD, and they had this forecast that the market for AI accelerators, AI accelerators only, will be $400 billion in 2027. That's up from their forecast that they only just gave in August of $150 billion. Last year, the entire semiconductor market, every chip you can think of, was $500 billion, which makes this forecast of multi-multi-year ongoing expansion from AI even more amazing, I suppose. Do you see the investors following that trajectory from now through 2027? 
I, I think eventually, yes. I mean, what, what you continue to see is that the bears don't get to be in charge very often, so they're kind of loath to leave the stage. You know, we heard that the tech trade was over in October of, uh, or in the fall, but in particular October of 2022. We were in buying. At the end of um, the summer, the stocks got you know, pretty well trounced, in, in including the Magnificent Seven. We wrote a piece on October 31st, said you ought to get in here and buy some of this stuff, and we were doing that. So I think what you want to do, I mean, this won't work forever, Ed. I, I, I mean, that's for sure. But these super cycles can run five to ten years, and we're in early days. Super and you cycle. have identified the total addressable market, which is critical, and it and extends beyond chips into software as well. Uh, that, that is the conversation I'm having every day at the moment. Everyone's obsessed with the GPUs. What about all the other stuff? Producer John Hyland saying in our chat, if NVIDIA is the champagne, then Broadcom's the PBR beer <laughs> based on your thesis. But what about the Ethernet uh, uh, infrastructure that's needed, the memory chips? Do you think that that's kind of being discounted right now? Yeah, I think, um, you know, NVIDIA is sucking all the air out of the room. And now you've got AMD in there kind of adding some value, uh, you know, adding some narrative to this. Broadcom is only partially, it's going to be about 25% of revenues, the the enterprise cloud computing uh, chip part of it. Uh, but they've got VMware, which is going to pick up some of the slack. So we're looking at names like Adobe, which I call the unsung hero of generative AI. I mean, we own it and we're looking for opportunities to add to it. Uh, ServiceNow is taking IT spend away from from some of the other providers directing the traffic um, in the cloud. So there, there are a lot of ways to play this. Um, and I think, you know, I don't think you have to chase NVIDIA uh, up the ladder. Always so straight talking and coming out, showing how you've been putting your money where your mouth is. We really appreciate it. Nasa Tengler of Love for Tengler Investments. Great to have her here in New York. Meanwhile, Ed, to you. Yeah, coming up, we're going to have a conversation about DocuSign out with its quarterly report. We're going to recap those results and give the outlook with the CEO coming up next, Alan Tegerson on the program. Quick one, TSMC up four tenths of a percent on the ADRs. It's so weird what's going on. November data for sales, not good. October had been good. Down the 11 first 11 months of the year, they're down 4% year on year. We have no hard gauge on what's going on with this chip industry. If we bottomed out in some areas, or we're still sinking in others, but we'll keep tracking it. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Time for Talking Tech. First up, Indian conglomerate Tata Group is planning to build one of the country's biggest iPhone assembly plants. Now, the facility will likely have about 20 assembly lines and employ 50,000 workers, according to sources. Tata's plant would bolster Apple's efforts to increase production in India. Meanwhile, Tencent is betting on its new open-world adventure game to help expand its global reach. Now, the official trailer for Last Sentinel, well, it was unveiled during the 2023 Game Awards. Set in a dystopian future Tokyo, Last Sentinel was developed by Tencent's California-based Lightspeed LA studio. No word yet on the game's release date. Plus, Broadcom, we're just talking about it with Nancy Tengler, but Broadcom says it expects the rapid expansion of AI computing to help offset its worst slowdown since 2020. CEO Hock Tan referred to AI as somewhat of a bright spot for the chip maker, which expects sales for its AI-supporting chips to grow more than 25% in 2024. Yesterday was Broadcom's first quarterly report since its acquisition of software firm VMware. Ed, what have you got? Yeah, another earnings conversation. DocuSign out with results, beating expectations on revenue in the third quarter gone, but offering a margin outlook that was seen as cautious by some analysts. I'd like to say that joining us now is DocuSign CEO Alan Tigerson. DocuSign, e-signature, document generation, we all use it. Yep. Yeah, great results. The stock opened significantly lower, then rebounded, you're up yep. 4%. And the, the analysts are saying, come on. Give us a little bit more on your margin outlook. Why were you so conservative? Well, we've, we've I think, shown that we can uh, drive great operating efficiency inside the business. I think that was really the highlight of our Q3 results, record operating profit, record free cash flow. Um, but, you know, we, we still have growth ambitions as well. So we are balancing our investment in growth and our new roadmap with continuing to find new operating efficiencies. The, most of our Bloomberg technology audience would know DocuSign from e-signature. Someone sends you something, you sign it electronically, done, dusted, simple. But what is the technology story for DocuSign? You talked about growth. Growth into what? Yes. So historically, we, we pioneered e-signature, and that continues to be the majority of our business. But over the last several years, we've been investing in what we call agreement management, which is essentially helping companies manage agreements from development, editing, negotiating, settling, signing, and then, once you have the signed agreements, what are you doing with them? How are you performing against your obligations? How are your vendors performing? And how would you like to renegotiate them when they're up for renewal? That whole suite we call agreement management. We've delivered various pieces of it, and we're really putting the whole thing together now. Morgan Stanley, analyst over there, Josh Baer, talking about decelerating trends, of course, which you try to counteract with this growth story, a focus on a broader agreement. What does the macro economy paint for you and your customers at the moment? Yeah, I would say it's still a, a cautious outlook. Uh, our, our outlook uh, reflects what we see right now. We don't try to be macro prognosticators, but I would say the B2B software space and enterprise spend in that area is, is uh, you know, steady, um, certainly to the extent that the macro environment and interest rates improve, then that, that will be very helpful, but we're not projecting that uh, yet. But I, I'd say that we're in a, a, a stable environment. Uh, we, we're not falling anymore. 
your background before, of course, DocuSign, Google, before Google, you were asset managing, you were also investing in startups at Carlisle, for example. Alan, what is it that you've managed to do? Because many would reflect that you're managing to contain costs. You're really managed to show this expansion while not bringing up the overall cost of doing business. How have you brought over your playbook of seeing others do it before to your business now? Yes. Uh, so, like, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I spent the early part of my career in startups and then in, uh, as an active venture investor. And so, I still look for entrepreneurial opportunity and growth, and that's what excites me and what excited me about the DocuSign opportunity. And so, I look for opportunities to invest in new growth areas. At the same time, I've seen scale uh, at, at Google, and uh, you know, some of the things that struck me as I looked at DocuSign coming in was, uh, you know, for example, we were not we were taking orders through humans for the vast majority of our business. When at Google, uh, if, a, if an advertiser spent $100 or $100 million a month with us, they placed their orders on the system. So I felt there were some opportunities to improve our self-service options, not just for small customers, but for customers of all sizes. And we're in the process of doing that, and that's good, doing really well. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask it. <laughs> what is the DocuSign AI story, <laughs> if there is one? Actually, I think we have a great story. Now, I'm sure all your guests say that, but if you think about agree- <laughs> if you think about agreements, historically, the way companies have treated agreements is they're essentially dumb, flat files. There's no sense of, yeah, we may have digitized them, but we still can barely find them, and we certainly don't know what's in them. The beauty of AI is it allows us to extract the essence of the agreement, the data of the agreements, and then you can then measure those agreements versus the actual performance as well as versus other agreements with similar entities. And so we are in the process of building that out. We're actually in active trials with a number of, of large companies. We've built a, a sandbox where they can try all this out. So I think agreement space is particularly well poised, and we, as a you know, by far the largest player in the agreement space with trusted relationships with almost a million and a half companies pay us monthly dues. Um, you know, that puts us in a great position to, to, to take advantage of AI. Uh, DocuSign CEO Alan Dickinson is great to catch up. Thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get a check in on these markets. Last day of trading of the week. And, well, we actually see a little bit of cautious buying when looking at the Nasdaq. We're up just a tenth of a percent. Of course, we had a lot of exuberance around AI. We'll dig into that in a moment. But the two-year yield is showing significant sell-off, actually, across the curve. Bonds selling off because, look, good news is bad news in terms of the strength of the U.S. economy. The jobs data showing growth, resilience, unemployment coming down. All of this meaning that maybe the Federal Reserve Well, keep rates a little bit higher for longer than we'd anticipated and certainly the confidence coming from the consumer as well showing that too interestingly though bitcoin once again managed to shrug off the issues with the bond market it's still rallying today move on have a look at some of the individual movers that we've got on the move i'm looking at alphabet just pulling back on some of those run-up that we saw yesterday remember it did manage to push higher on the back of its gemini announcements palmy olsen our opinion writer really digging into the detail of that announcement saying look it still lags open ai and actually some of those videos and marketing tools just went all they were cracked up to be, but still we're off by only about one and a half percent. NVIDIA on the higher side up almost two percent. The exuberance around what's happening with AMD, that's pulling back a little bit today. Interesting moves in the chip sector in general and TSMC not pointing to all that much resilience in certain parts, but NVIDIA gets a little bit of buying on the day. I'm looking at Paramount, quite a bit of buying in this particular name. Will the studios be bought? Is it on offer in general? We're seeing Redbird Capital, Tom Ellison as well, potentially eyeing this particular company. That's what, of course, Deadline is currently reporting. But people buying on that room, Ed. A big story. 
this Friday. A gene editing treatment for sickle cell disease based on the CRISPR technology was approved by US regulators, marking the first time the technology can be used in patients in the US. CRISPR uses precisely targeted changes in DNA to repair flaws in patients' genomes related to inherited disease, and if approved, would be the first time this technology can be used in patients, as we say, in America. The treatment is offered by Vertex Pharmaceuticals and CRISPR Therapeutics. There was some interesting equity or share response when the news broke. You can see those names now lower in US trading. Jennifer Doudna is a biochemist at the University of California, Berkeley, and pioneered the CRISPR technology, which led to her winning the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry, along with her collaborator, Emmanuel Charpentier. Jennifer Doudna joins us now. I I start by asking you to just give your reaction to the news we outlined. Well, Ed, I'm just, I'm amazed. It's 11 years from a fundamental discovery in science to an approved therapeutic. That's just extraordinary speed, and it speaks to the many, many people that contributed to make that possible. I posted on X the news, and what I was surprised by is the number of people who responded saying that they had been impacted by sickle cell disease, either a family member, somebody they know. Could you just explain the basics of what this treatment would do, how it would work? Well, sickle cell disease is a human condition that results from a single gene in our DNA that is defective. And in patients that have two copies of that gene, they have terrible symptoms, pain, crises they go through. It shortens their lifespan. It's it's really a, a devastating disorder. And what CRISPR offers now is, for some patients at least, an opportunity to have a treatment that is effectively a cure. They don't, uh, they get a one-and-done therapy that removes their symptoms for the rest of their life. I'm interested in now the application, Jennifer, and ultimately how quickly you think this can be in the hands of patients and really from an economic perspective and an equality perspective in the hands of patients when it's likely to be pretty expensive. Right. Well, you bring up a very important point, and that's a reason that we're working hard at the Innovative Genomics Institute at the University of California to ensure that this type of therapy becomes widely available and affordable because, as you point out, it's an expensive treatment right now. It also involves weeks of hospitalization to deliver the therapy. So we really want to figure out ways to have new technologies intersecting with genome editing that will reduce costs and make it more available to people worldwide. And talking of worldwide, the UK, the regulators there, had signed off the use of CRISPR-Cas9. How do you think this will become a global story? How do you think that it will evolve to help other diseases that currently affect and are passed down the generations? Well, here's a very exciting thing about CRISPR, and that is that it's a therapeutic that can be programmed for different diseases. And now that we see the path forward with sickle cell disease, which is an amazing first start, it's really the beginning of what I think will be a new era of medicine, where we have in the future cures for various kinds of genetic disorders and perhaps even one day preventive treatments that result from modifying our genes. The supply chain for these treatments is complicated, Jennifer. We've covered on the show the idea that you do a lot of the R&D and prelim manufacturing planning while it's pre-approval. Do you have confidence that there will be a sort of availability of, of treatments for those that need them based on the market's ability to make them, to provide them? 
Well, I do. I think it won't happen overnight, but there's enormous effort going on both in nonprofits and, of course, in many companies to ensure that there will be supply chain um, you know, benefits from this that we'll be able to figure out how to get these products made and the quantities that are needed. And I think that um, over time, and it will take some time, there are going to be some streamlining processes that will just advance the therapies and, and make it more and more available to people around the world. Uh, we, we outlined uh, your 2020 Nobel Prize Award, the work that you've done, is there work, at least at the intersection of academia and, and biotechnology, that still needs to be done in this field? And if so, what are you doing right now? Yes. As I was driving to work this morning, I was thinking, you know, this is a wonderful, exciting day, but it's also the very beginning, and there's a lot of work to be done. It's time to roll up our sleeves. I think we need to really work hard to figure out how to, as we discussed, make the these uh, therapies more widely available, of course, bring down the cost. And I think that will be a combination of technical developments as well as working with regulators, working with patient advocacy groups, and really figuring out how we appropriately partner between academics and companies to control the cost in a way that will you know, make this benefit available to many. And you do that. You are that sort of go-between between academia and helping advise companies. And I look at CRISPR, which the company involved here that has what, about $5 billion market capitalization. Vertex is a $90 billion market capitalization, can put in the R&D spend. But what about the money allocated to this field of work at the moment, Jennifer? And, and where is the money necessary to come from? Well, it comes from various sources. Of course, investors are playing a big role in these companies, but we're also seeing big um, input from the governments. So you may know the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. has a, has a major effort to advance gene editing in the context of gene and cell therapy. So that's very important. We have other nonprofit uh, organizations that do philanthropic support of science. The Gates Foundation comes to mind, but there are many others who are supporting this. So there, there's, a, there's a lot of effort here, and I think many people appreciate the potential of genome editing to impact large numbers of people if we can really figure out how to reduce costs and make these, uh, these widely available therapies um, uh, you know, available to people around the world. Of course, back in 2020, the world was in a very different place and the joy and necessary optimism around leaps and bounds of, of creativity and technological development in science, in particular medicine, was really important. It feels that 2023, all the oxygen has been dragged out of the room when it comes to AI innovation and generative AI. To that end, there's a lot of discussion about safety. And I know that's a big point for you, Jennifer. How are you thinking about the application of CRISPR technologies and ensuring that this is rolled out in the safest way manner and manner possible? Well, it's a great question. It's very important. This is one of our, our founding principles at our, at our institute, is ensuring safety and responsibility as CRISPR technologies continue to advance. I think it's, um, for me, one of the, the uh, questions regarding ethics is really about equity, and we've, we've touched on that um, a lot in this conversation. It's very important. But I also think we have to continue to think about safety and effectiveness of these therapies and to figure out really how to work with regulators to ensure that we have a process for testing the safety, but also that we advance the therapies as quickly as, as we can to help patients. It's a, it's a delicate balance. Jennifer, I want to return to the idea that if sickle cell is the start, 
what is the next step? What is the next breakthrough that could help humankind? Well, I'm very excited about a couple of things. I think that uh, certainly um, advancing the genome editing approach into other types of tissues will be important. And we're seeing some great progress there in terms of, especially for liver disease, uh, work being done by a company called Intellia that for disclosure, I'm a founder of, although I didn't do any of the science they're doing. And they've shown effectiveness in treating rare liver diseases using CRISPR genome editing. And the important thing there is they're delivering these molecules directly into patients without requiring a bone marrow transplant, which is required for the, the sickle cell treatment. So I think that's an exciting advance. And then there's also work to, in the future, provide protective medicine for people who have uh, genes that might make them susceptible to cardiovascular disease, for example. So that's work coming out of a company called Verve. So I would keep an eye on those. I think they're really exciting developments in the field going forward. And developments that you keep out driving, Jennifer. We really appreciate you making some time for us today on this milestone here in the U.S. Jennifer Dowden, of course, founder of the Innovative Genomics Institute and, of course, CRISPR co-inventor. Thank you. Great to talk to you. We were just talking a bit about venture and the backing in medicine. Let's talk about Harpoon Ventures, raising $125 million fund to back early stage startups. We'll discuss where that money is being allocated. Nelson Jensen's with us. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It's time for the VC Roundup. First up, Airspace Intelligence, an AI startup targeting air travel, has raised $34 million in a funding round led by Andreessen Horowitz to more aggressively pursue deals with the U.S. Department of Defense. The new financing brings a bit of chunk of change to the equation. Meanwhile, Group a Sam Altman-backed crypto startup has launched a Bitcoin private credit fund via its investment management subsidiary. 
Meanwhile, advisors, according to new reports, the fund is targeting a 5% Bitcoin denominated yield by lending Bitcoin to borrowers. Plus, Harpoon Ventures, whose investors include Andreessen Horowitz, veteran Pete Levine, and former Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps, has raised $125 million for a new fund to back early-stage enterprise startups serving the public and private sectors. Carrie. Let's dig into that very story. Let's bring in Harpoon Ventures founder, Larson Jensen, for more on today's VC Spotlight and the money, the repeat ability to raise money. What is it that brings LPs back? And have you attracted new LPs, for example? Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here and really appreciate the time today. Um, It's really a testament, I think, to what we built over the past number of years. When we started years ago, I really think that we were the first to observe that emerging uh, technology and startups were going to have further reaching implications than they previously had, at least in my lifetime. Meaning, more specifically, they were going to have national security and geopolitical uh, implications that they really hadn't until this current era. And we see this more recently with the announcement by the Five Eyes of Chinese espionage. We see this with President Biden's executive order on artificial intelligence, and we're seeing it within our portfolio. And so as we think about the LPs that are re-upping to us nowadays, the repeat LPs that have been with us for the past five years, and we certainly have brought on some new ones as well. But it's no secret that LPs are actually uh, struggling in this environment due to the denominator effect, due to being over-allocated to private investments, broadly speaking. But I think what we built has been a you know, testament to our progress over the past six years. And what's been interesting is you raise this fund at a time where there is a lot of hand-wringing around artificial intelligence, future regulations, EOs being written, EU still trying to get its act together with the AI Act. It's interesting that some of your portfolio companies already are in the area of safety and AI. How have you decided which companies are wheat from chaff in this particular arena? It's very difficult to do, and I think it's difficult to do because the space is changing so drastically. So when we think about what we're investing in, we're investing in things from a first principle standpoint where we have, generally speaking, domain expert technologists who have a core defensible technology. They're serial entrepreneurs oftentimes, and we're very customer obsessed. We think that there's no greater gauge than talking to the early customers of these technologies to understand the pain points, to understand the budgets, and align those with our investment decisions. I'm really interested in Astranis as an example, right, of a a target company or a portfolio company. There are a section of the VC community that kind of say, hey, our our portfolio companies have access to a lot of public capital, whether it's defense or government or municipal. Does that make for an attractive uh, potential investment for you guys? It does, but I think the way we put it, it needs to be dual use in nature. We like to see companies with a large addressable market in the enterprise, and in the case of Astronis, they're selling predominantly to internet service providers around the world. But our thesis in investing with them and in subsequently in helping with them was to do business with Uncle Sam as well. And we think that's a large-scale, durable market for that company, and I think really should uh, increase the possible outcome of what that company can do. Lawson, what was the experience of raising the fund? Um, How long did it take? Was it challenging? Was it easy? Were you being pushed? Were you doing the pushing? A little bit of both. I think that this year in 2023, it's no secret that it was much more difficult than in 2021. In 2021, investors and allocators and limited partners were really jumping uh, both feet into the pool, maybe diving into the pool of venture capital, probably led by large-scale IPOs and getting cash back into their wallets for them to redeploy. The IPO window has been effectively shut, as we've seen since then. And so it really puts allocators in a little bit of a bind in terms of where they allocate that incremental dollar. And it's also no 
secret that the opportunity cost of capital has gone up. Many, many of the institutional investors out there have about an 8% target on their overarching endowment or foundation. And now you can essentially get that not necessarily risk-free, but much more so than allocating to longer uh, horizon asset classes like venture capital. So it took a little bit of longer, but I think we're fortunate that we have durable capital partners that have worked with us for the past six years, and the majority of which have really stepped up to the plate to continue to back us. You mentioned the word pool, and I mean, I ask a personal question because many people will recognize you for the fact that you've got not one but two Olympic medals. You're, of course, still deeply involved in jumping in the sea every now and then. And I'm interested as to how that mentality has affected the way in which you raise money or actually and, and, and allocate and do business. Or actually, does it make, because people know who you are and what you were dedicated to, they're more willing to invest in you too, is it? I think it's a combination of attributes, to be honest. And I think that really the raw ingredients that I used as an adolescent young swimmer going from high school into professional swimming and going to the Olympics are the ingredients of waking up early early, grinding it out, and investing in myself for decades, perhaps, in order to make an Olympic appearance. I think investing in venture capital is very similar in the sense that you can't control necessarily the outputs, but you can control the inputs. You can control day in and day out if you're going to be the first in the pool and the last out. And ultimately, that's the effort we expect of our team and we expect of our founders. And that's what we bring to bear when we work with them. Still a record holder in the 400 meter freestyle, not to mention ex Navy SEAL. We thank you so much, Helping Ventures founder and general partner, Larson Jensen. It's the latest edition of Bloomberg Business Week, and it takes a deep dive into Salesforce, particularly an environment that's actually much harsher than it was pre pandemic, and it's impacting tech firms across the board. This particular breakdown of his piece, the era of $800 dinners and luxury car bonuses is over at Salesforce. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Brody Ford. It's a great cover. It's a great story. And you really take a look at one particular individual's sort of rise within sales role and ultimately how much he was winning and bringing in. What has changed at CRM now? So there was a while where at Salesforce and the industry at large, you show up, you had a nice smile you can make 400k. I mean, software was flying off the shelves. We saw it. Entire industries had to digitize in the pandemic. And even before that, I mean, there was just really this kind of golden era of these software companies because there were so many customers. Everybody needed to digitize. Obviously, interest rates have gone up. The economic picture is different. And companies are saying, how the hell did we end up spending so much money on software? Which has caused companies like Salesforce to say, okay, we need to actually start cutting costs. Where are the costs? With salespeople. So the job gets a lot harder. Mm -hmm. uh, Brody, you got a shout out from Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce. As you know, and I know, you write about somebody's company, it can go one way or another. He seems to agree with the thesis outlined in your piece. I think they know that they need to be seen as the bad guy for a little bit right now. Because they, remember, they had all these activist investors a year ago that were saying, you are not raising your profit margins quickly enough. Essentially, this story shows what it looks like when you raise your profit margins 10 percentage points in six months. Things get harder. Um, Salesforce is aware that they need to be doing that. And they, I think, are happy to see it explained. You go into detail that Benioff himself is a really a natural salesman. Yeah. 
What sort of talent are they now focusing in on? What, if it's not a nice smile, yeah. like what do they have to bring to the table and how is that the read across, across the rest of the sales community? Right? Yeah, well, you know, they still have salespeople, but what's funny is that they're just kind of hiring more engineers now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, when they're looking hired, to Amazon, the Amazon marketplace, right? Right. I mean, when they hired 30,000 people in the pandemic, majority of those were salespeople. Whereas now in the layoffs, the majority cut were salespeople. And so they're really just focusing in on what's going to get us to the next level. And a lot of that is having to build new products. And we're seeing that across the industry. I mean, there's a lot of high-flying startups. You can name any of them. Zoom, Twilio, doesn't matter. They had a similar trajectory, and now they're having a similar bus cycle. On that happy note, <laughs> we'll leave it. But it's a phenomenal story. It's getting a lot of pickup across online. And, and go pick it off the shelf or have you consume, of course, your business week. Bloomberg's Brody Ford. Really interesting deep dive into Salesforce. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, Ed. Uh, in a relentless year and another relentless week, a lot to recap. Check out the pod, the Bloomberg Technology Podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and we post it to Bloomberg. And we're on YouTube from San Francisco in New York City. Happy Friday. This is Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.